0: Welcome to Omnia, the podcast on all things Penn Arts and Sciences. Kweishan Spencer asks a simple question about race with a not-so-simple answer. What kind of thing is it? Spencer, the Robert S. Blank Presidential Associate Professor of Philosophy at Penn, poses the question to undergraduates in his Philosophy of Race course. As a specialist in the philosophies of science, biology, and race, His course examines the very nature and reality of race, beginning with the early theories put out by European thinkers, including Francois Bernier and Immanuel Kant. Kant's 18th-century essay, Of the Different Human Races, provided a scientific definition of race that would influence a long tradition of scholars using science to reinforce negative racial stereotypes a tradition that Spencer's course investigates alongside more contemporary philosophical, social, and political questions about race and racism. Professor Spencer began thinking about these questions himself while an undergrad at Cornell University. He originally thought he'd pursue a career in medicine, but a philosophy class changed his academic trajectory.
1: I was training to be an MD, PhD. And what actually ended up happening was I was a philosophy and chemistry double major, and uh, I took this course with Richard Boyd, who's this, um, he's really interested in the social impact of science and the social elements that are tied up in science. And so he did this graduate level course that was crossed with advanced undergraduates on science and objectivity. It was like, that was the focus of the course. And in the course, we read the bell curve. The bell curve, was the single book that changed the trajectory of my career.
0: We begin with Charles Murray. It has been some time since it's been a more controversial book and a book that has generated a more fierce reaction. It has been on the cover of a number of magazines. Take a look at the New York Times Book Review, How Much of Us is in the Genes. Take a look at Newsweek, IQ, a hard look at a controversial new book on race, class and success. IQ? Is it destiny? It is all because uh, this scholar has written a book called The Bell Curve in which he talks
1: about... So the book itself argued, among other things, it actually argued for a lot of things, but its most controversial claim was that the IQ test score differences that we see on average among uh, African Americans, Asian Americans, white Americans, and so forth had a genetic component, right? Some people mess up the claim Uh, They didn't say it was mostly genetic or anything, just some genetic component, right? And it seems innocuous, but it was, of course, um, the chapter after where where they introduced this, the next chapter, they talk about affirmative action, right? And so the whole line is, well, you know, some of these social programs are predicated on a mistake, like that we can just pour more money into giving equal access to education and everything's gonna work out. But what if some groups of people are just inherently inferior, right? And of course, so that's what made it objectionable and controversial. So you had lots of social scientists and statisticians uh, making critiques of the research, the experimental design and so forth. Um, But what was interesting to me was distinctive philosophical critiques that one could make. So I was interested in this metaphysical question whether this sort of observation was even possible. And to get at the base of that, what you're really asking is what kind of thing is race, right? Is race the kind of thing that we can uh, use to support non-accidental biological generalizations like species, right? Or populations, biological populations? Uh, Or is race the sort of thing where the best you can do in terms of the generalizations you can make about them is uh, sort of like social uh, uh, generalizations, right? Um, so, you know, that's what I was interested in. Uh, there wasn't a lot of people working on that. Philosophy of race was just starting um, at the time. This was the late 90s when I was in college, and philosophy of race just started like in the early 90s. So, philosophical questions about race, a lot older. The subfield of philosophy of race started in the early 90s. So, there wasn't a lot of good work on that. I said, I'm kind of interested in this, I can't really shake this philosophy bug. And so I jumped into philosophy, changed my career trajectory, went to graduate school, got a master's in philosophy, uh, still got a master's in biology because I thought that I needed to get more uh, training there to answer the questions I was interested in. These these are the questions that I'm interested in. What's the relationship between race and biology? And um, then, of course, finished up with PhD in philosophy and... So, I had a very different sort of trajectory. A lot of people who do philosophy of race come into philosophy of race from concerns about uh, racism, right, and equity and justice. So, sort they're of coming from ethics and political philosophy. Uh, I'm coming from philosophy of science and metaphysics because uh, I want to know what race is and, you know, is, is it the sort of thing that can sustain non accidental biological generalizations or not?
0: Professor Spencer's course, Philosophy of Race, is an introductory class for philosophy majors, but welcomes undergraduates from any field of study. With a focus on language and logic, the course starts by examining 17th and 18th century scholars who began using the term race
1: in ways similar to its use today. The idea of the course was to sort of teach it in the distinctive way that is analytic philosophy, uh, where we focus on language and logic, arguments, things like that. And insofar as we focus a lot on language, uh, I wanted to have the start of the course to be where scholars first coined the term race uh, in something like the way that we would recognize it today. Um, historically, historians of, of science and, uh, and race have settled upon Francois Bernier. He's a 16, about 1680s um, traveler, and you know uh, what we consider now a biogeographer, or something like that. And uh, his paper was called "A Nouvelle Division de la Terre," so a new division of Earth. It was a French, uh, in a French journal, the first international journal of science. Um, so you, here you have the first international journal of science uh, published in the 17th century, and within the first 20 years of the first issue, uh, you have a paper on race. Right? This is how central race studies was in science at the time. And he published it anonymously, but people later, sort of like Kant, like referred to him, Blumenbach referred to him. Uh, people read his work. Uh, one thing that was problematic, or at least Kant thought was problematic about Bernier's work, was like a lot of other thinkers at the time, he didn't distinguish between races and species, at least in the human context. So it wasn't clear at all that blacks and whites and so forth were of the same species, even though they were all human right? Um, and so what Kant did that was distinctive, uh, that no one else really did at the time, was he put race in its place, so to speak, from a, from a uh, classification point of view. Um, he said race is a level below species, and he actually distinguished between races and varieties and variations and you know, stocks. he has all this terminology if you've read Kant, you know, he has all kinds of vocabulary. So he would have all these different sort of ways of dividing up a species and race would have this special place, right? So Kant's theory of heredity is, is germ theory. He called, said we have germs. And some of those germs are called endowments. It's a subgroup of the germs. And those endowments are special insofar as they affect certain parts of the body, uh, parts that would be related to racial traits, so form and like, uh, facial features, uh, skin color, things like that. These were, for Kant, only affected by the climate and the sun, right? So, I mean, now, already, already you're thinking, it's like, okay, so you can have parts of your body that can, you know, are affected by something that's inherited in you, and that altogether is influenced by the climate, Sounded a little bit like natural selection evolution, not quite that idea, but he's ahead of his time in this respect. Um, I mean, uh, but another reason to start with him is because he gave the sophisticatedness of the view still reinforced popular negative racial stereotypes. And it kind of was probably the first installment of a long tradition of scholars using science and making it more sophisticated every step, and getting the same result of like a racial hierarchy where the Caucasians are at the top and African or Blacks are at the bottom. Kant had, you know, he certainly wasn't the first scholar in his period to say anything negative about racial groups. Carolinas Linnaeus had plenty of negative things to say, um, but he regimented it in a way such that. Well, now it's like compelling because it's all part of this system that was thoughtfully put together. And you can can actually tie some of these character traits to the germs that were inherited uh, from previous generations was part of the theory. So um, it's just interesting, I think, for the students uh, to see how the system was put together by none other than one of the most famous philosophers in European philosophy. Um, Of course, that was no contradiction for Kant, which is a surprise for some students, because uh, what it takes to be part of the human species is different from what it takes to be part of the moral community of humanity for Kant. Um, So you could absolutely satisfy the biological properties, which is just successful fertile reproduction for Kant to be part of the human species. But actually, if if you were unfortunately born into a certain race, then you would have these fixed character traits that would preclude you from being part of the moral community because there are character traits that would ensure that you wouldn't have the mental capacity to participate in the sorts of things that would make you a moral agent for Kant. And this was not like fringe scholarship. This was mainstream stuff. And it just gets worse as you go up in the 1800s and uh, you start studying folks like Samuel Morton. Uh, he was a Philadelphian, he was a Penn alum. He was one of the first like proponents of craniometry. It was a, a method of quantifying uh, mental differences, uh, which was part of this other movement called phrenology, which was using uh, skulls and things to make inferences about mental uh, capacities. You Know it was, he was doing mainstream science. It was, he was one of the most famous scientists in the United States at the time, 1800s. And we have his collection of skulls at Penn Museum. So uh, that's one of the field trips we do. We go right over to Penn Museum and we look at uh, his sample of different raced people that he worked on. And um, then we keep marching out. Oh, well, of course, we get tied into a little bit of the politics at the time because Morton's work was used to say annex various states, uh, like this was the science that you could use to justify slavery, right? Uh, So this is actually one of the reasons that Texas, uh, there were some politicians involved in the annexation of Texas, and uh, they cited Morton, right? So the science, you can't just ignore the science. It's all connected in the history of race and racism. With a foundation in these
0: early writings on race, Spencer's class examines more contemporary theories, many of which emerge from what's called philosophy of race, a subfield of analytic philosophy that's practiced by other types of philosophers as well.
1: When philosophy of race came to scene, there was influenced a lot by analytic philosophy uh, in that tradition of, of European philosophy. There's a lot of attention paid to language and logic. And so folks started getting really careful about language. And actually, people like Sally Haslanger, philosopher of race at MIT, came on the scene from being the first to introduce a referential meaning of race in the contemporary United States for ordinary speakers. What Haslanger said was, well, if race is a name, then you know perhaps it's also directly connected to the object of reference. Um, but what is that object of reference? And from her work, she uh, claims that the object of reference is what she calls a racialized group. It's a group that we perceive to be a certain type of biological group. We perceive it to be a group uh, organized by geographic ancestry and skin color, but is actually a group that's organized by social power relations, right? And, you know, so that's, that's a level of... Of metaphysical complexity, right? That you don't you don't really get until you have uh, analytic philosophers coming into race theory. Now, I mean, again, you had race theory since the sixteen hundreds, and also I didn't mention you had a movement called critical race theory. They usually presuppose that race is not biological; it's a social construct. Um, what's different in philosophy of race is. That we're not making that presupposition, and in fact, you know, Haslinger doesn't make that presupposition. She just gets this as a result. And uh, so, there's lots of people who think that race is biological. Like Apia um, has a view that race is biological, but given the type of biological thing it is, it doesn't exist. So, some of the the first race theories in philosophy of race were anti-realist theories. Race doesn't exist. Um, And also uh, biological realist theories, like race exists, uh, but it exists as a biological kind of thing that's quite different from what folks were talking about in the 1800s, 1700s.
0: In the past few decades, the study of human genetics has provided evidence that challenges the idea that different races of humans are biologically separate and distinct. However, some argue that racial classifications can still be useful for geneticists and public health researchers who examine the correlation between disease and genetic ancestry. Until very recently, genomic research has lacked diversity, relying heavily on samples of people with majority European ancestry. Professor Spencer discusses a recent study that brings this issue to light.
1: So there's this phenomenon where some people don't respond to the... Typical treatment was a certain round of chemotherapy. Uh, We want to figure out why that is. The standard sort of way you would figure that out is something called a genome-wide association study, which is where you get a sample of human genomes, presumably people who have the disease, people who don't, and you're trying to find correlations between certain uh, DNA sequences and risk of having the disease. Before the NIH got serious about diversifying samples, uh, genome-wide association studies were over ninety-six percent composed of people of European ancestry, and this this is a problem, right? <laughs> because you might there might be variation that you're not picking up from other parts of the globe that could be useful for solving puzzles like this this acute lymphoblastic leukemia puzzle. Now, so what they did in this study was they had higher sample sizes of people from these other four continental populations. In particular, they had people with lots of Native American ancestry. Uh, So these are uh, Mexican-Americans in addition to people who are members of registered tribes. right? And so because they had the sample size that was high enough, they're able to actually detect two alleles non-coding. These are just nucleotide residues uh, that were linked to parts of the genome that Obviously, had an impact on how you respond to chemotherapy, and um, this was linked to people with at least 10% Native American ancestry. Right, and so there you have something interesting coming along for the ride with the ancestry in one of these racial groups. Uh, so, I mean, making that general claim can can have negative like consequences as well, because if you say, well, you know, there's no there's no racial differences. Obviously, races like, you know, political affiliation or sports fan, you know, these purely socially constructed things. Well, you might start to think, it doesn't really matter how I sample people for genetic studies for medicine, right? And then you end up with samples that are all white. Right? <laughs> and now who's losing out in uh, the development of technologies to better health, right? So, you know, it's not like there's hundred percent safety on either side. Uh, clearly, uh, the historical track record of the biological realist is much poorer. Um, but I think on, on both the issues, it's important to get at the truth. What is the actual state of affairs? And once you have that, then you can figure out, you know, sort of normative questions. There's a lot of students uh, in today's America that think they've worked out, you know, okay, race is this. Obviously, if you don't have this view, then you're a racist. Well, okay, what is racism, right? What is race? Convince me that you're right, right? Give me the argument. And when you put the challenge to students like that and you give them these rules, this is how you deductively, validly, you know, make your argument. It, it definitely makes it more humble to see how difficult this is. And um, a lot of times, students flip, right? It's like, you know, I came in thinking that race was this non-biological social construct. Now I see I can't defend that, right? I came in thinking that race was this biological thing that was obviously real. In most cases, they start to appreciate the other side and to see what sort of evidence they need to make their argument more tight, uh, to make it deductively valid. Um, and if they can't find it, then a lot of times they just end up in this this gray haze of, I don't really know what to think, which is usually kind of where we want you to be at the end of a philosophy class.
0: <laughs> this has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Professor Quayshon Spencer from the Department of Philosophy. To listen to previous episodes of the Omnia podcast, visit our website, or subscribe to the Omnia podcast by Pen Arts and Sciences
1: on iTunes.